This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. There's a humanitarian crisis unfolding in the African country, Sudan. You've probably been seeing a lot about it in the news headlines, maybe not knowing exactly what's going on. Well, experts are warning things are going to get a whole lot worse. Millions of people already in need of urgent help are now desperate. So what is happening in Sudan? We're going to be breaking this down in a bit, so stay listening. It's worth a listen. Later, what kind of lasting impact is social media having on language? We're going to dive into that. First, though, hack. I have $73,000 worth of hacks, and here's how long it's going to take me to pay it off. It's going to free up those appointments with GPs so that people can see their doctor when they really need to. On Triple J. Yeah, fair bit going on in politics at the moment. You know, when we had the Prime Minister on a few weeks ago and asked what he was doing about the cost of living crisis that's hitting young Australians, he mentioned a couple of things, including making medicines cheaper. Well, today the government announced it is making changes to allow people living with chronic health conditions to get more medication at the one time. Doctors and consumer groups, they're cheering. They say it's going to free up a lot of time, but not everybody's happy with this move. Does it impact you? Are you going to be affected? Do you have a chronic health condition? Do you need to be getting more medication at once? Is that going to help if you live in a remote regional location? Message in 0439757555. Well, our Canberra reporter Shalala Madora is right across it, as you can imagine. She's with us now. Hey, Shalala, first off, what was the announcement all about? So, Dave, at the moment, if you've got a chronic illness, you can go to the GP and get quite a few repeats for your medication under the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. But when you go to the chemist or the pharmacist, you can only get 30 days supply of that particular drug. So under these changes, you'll be able to get a 60 day supply at the cost of just one single prescription, effectively halving the out of pocket costs to you. So Health Minister Mark Butler said that's going to ease the cost of living pressures for up to six million patients living with chronic illness. The ABS, the Bureau of Statistics, says that as many as almost one million Australians go without a medicine or defer getting a script filled because of cost. We also know from overseas evidence that having a larger supply of medicines for patients in chronic disease improves medication compliance by as much as 20%. But Dave, it's important to stress that doctors will still have discretion here on whether or not you can get this two-month supply of these drugs. That decision will be made if your condition is stable and if you don't have any other of those risk factors. Okay, right. So Shalala, do we know what chronic conditions are going to be eligible here? Yeah, so once once this program's fully rolled out, we're going to have about 325 commonly used medications under the PBS on this program, but that's not going to be phased in for the next year or so. At the moment, we have around 100, about a third or so of those medications are known to us, and they're used for commonly, um, for, for conditions that young people commonly have. So things like endometriosis, depression, anxiety, acne, type 1 diabetes, quite a few conditions that do affect young people will be included in this. Okay, right. I was seeing there were some comments from pharmacists, though, who didn't really seem to be on board, why are they worried? Yeah, so pharmacists get paid by the government every time a drug on the PBS 
PBS is prescribed. And they say this measure is going to cost them a lot of money. In fact, the government itself estimates that the changes will cost about $1.2 billion, but they say that money is going to go back to community pharmacists. But community pharmacists, they're not so convinced. They're worried that this money isn't going to cover the shortfall, and they're also worried about supply. They say at the moment it's really hard to get your hands on commonly used drugs and that this will actually make it harder for people, for patients who need some of those really hard-to-get drugs. We'll keep an eye on it. It's definitely an issue that people are going to keep talking about. Another big issue that people are talking about, you've been covering, Shalila, is the cost of student loans. And we reported last week that indexation of HEX and HELP and vocational education loans was going to come in, was going to be escalated this coming year and would cost students and graduates thousands of dollars. Today, we did find out just how much those loans are going up. What do we know? As predicted, it's not good news, Dave. Inflation figures out today sealed the deal. Student loans will go up from June the 1st by 7.1%. That's the second highest ever since HEX was introduced in 1989. And in fact, it's the biggest increase since 1990. So the average student loan will be increased by about 1700 bucks as a result of these inflation figures. That's wild. So has yeah, the a lot. Has the government changed its mind about pausing the loan increases? Because because that was something that people were calling for, right? Yeah, so quite a few of the crossbenchers, that is people in smaller parties or independents, have called on the government to pause indexation and to increase the payment threshold, so increase the amount you have to earn before you start paying back this loan. But at the moment, there's no indication of that. The federal budget is just a fortnight away, so there's a small chance we'll actually see some movement here, but at this stage we haven't heard any indication from the government that they will take on those those calls. Right, Okay, another (laughs) wait and watch experience. There's so much going on in Parliament. As always, we appreciate you staying across it. Political reporter Shalala Madora, thanks for filling us in. You're so welcome, Dave. And we have been talking about this for the last few days on the Shake Up. We heard loud and clear your concerns about hex debts, help debts, getting out of control. What is your reaction to this confirmation today that it's going to go up by more than 7% with this indexation? As I said, we knew it was going to happen, but let me know what you're thinking now the announcement's being made. You can message in 0439757555. Elise is in Victoria and has called in. Hey, Elise, what does this mean for you? Hi, Dave. Um, so at the moment, um, I have a hex debt of about 75 grand. Um, because wow. I retrained after I initially studied and was working for a couple of years. Um, so pretty much all of the money that comes out of my pay every every fortnight that goes towards my debt, it's going to be added just back on in interest. So I effectively just can't pay it off as fast as it's being added on. And I'm like, I'm trying quite hard to put money onto it so that I, it can come down and so that I can you know, eventually get a house and, um, yeah, at the moment it's just... Impossible. Elise, yeah. that must be so frustrating, especially when you're making such an active attempt, like you're not just leaving it and saying, oh, well, yeah, I'll pay it off it. when I pay it off. Does it make you angry? It does make me, yeah, pretty angry, actually. Listening to um, the people that you had on last week, I was getting actually quite frustrated and um, pretty, yeah, infuriated because it just seems like they're quite out of touch with what's mm. going on with young people, Um and, and to say that people should just reconsider studying, it's, um, I, I think it's a pretty stupid comment because 
then we'd never really have anybody um, studying like teaching and nursing and those are professions we really need at the moment. So it just seemed a stupid stupid couple of comments that they made. For sure. And look, I imagine this is meaning that you're not spending money on other things while you're trying to pay off your debt. It's having this big flow on effect. Look, Elise, your story is not unique, unfortunately. So many people in a similar situation. We do appreciate you calling in though and sharing your experience. Thanks for coming. Yeah, on that's hack. right. Thanks, Dave. And we've got some more messages coming through from people on the pharmacy announcement, actually. Somebody says, is this going to help mental health and the cost of seeing a psychiatrist? That was from Alex. Another person says, I just wish there was a way that you don't have to pay a GP fee when having a repeat prescription done for something you've been on for a long time and crucially require. That was from Jesse in Redcliffe. And another person says, to be able to get two months of my ADHD meds at once would be a godsend. It's such a hassle to get them. And the constant reminders that I need to get them can be halved. Look, lots of messages pouring in, heaps of messages from pharmacists as well who are really concerned about this. We're getting those loud and clear. We're going to move on now. Hack. They're desperate. They are just waiting for them to help. On Triple J. Yeah, there's so much going on right now in the African nation, Sudan. You would have been seeing this right across the news headlines. If you've been keeping across the news, hundreds of people have died in fighting recently. Millions are in desperate need of help. And so many others are trying to get out. So what's going on? Well, there are two heads of military forces both trying to seize more power. It is a complicated story. Widespread poverty, inflation hurting people in Sudan... But over the weekend, a lot of countries started to evacuate their diplomats. And there's a current ceasefire, but gunshots are still being heard across the capital. Kimberly Price breaks this down a bit. Sudden fighting has erupted in Sudan, and so far over 400 people have lost their lives. But what sparked the unrest? Well, let's go back to 2019. There was a coup which overthrew oppressive President Omar al-Bashir and the country finally thought they would get a democracy. But it didn't happen. Just two years later, two men combined their forces for another coup. Army General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan and General Mohamed Hamdan Degalo, who was the leader of the powerful paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, aka the RSF. Breaking news out of Sudan where the military has arrested several civilian ministers and officials. So hopes for a democratic Sudan were dashed. Al-Bahan and Degalo have led Sudan since 2021, but tensions bubbled over as the leaders tried to work out a deal to end the political crisis that enabled coups to continue happening. A major sticking point has been the idea of mixing the RSF into the military. Now, the RSF is not the army. It was created in 2013 and evolved from a group which has been accused of war crimes and the government used a paramilitary group in the Darfur conflict in 2003. From that time, much of Sudan has had a complex political landscape and widespread poverty. And mixing the RSF with the army begs the question, who would be in control? Al-Buhan, the leader of the army, or Degalo, leader of the RSF. Hundreds of protesters took to the streets in the capital, Khartoum, as talks with the country's military rulers to bring in civilian government has hit a roadblock. Experts say the fighting in Sudan revolves around the power struggle for the control of the country. 
There has been a series of ceasefires in Sudan to try and reach an agreement and save lives. But so far, none have worked. Today marks the first day of a new ceasefire and already thousands of people have fled the country. There have been reports of artillery and airstrikes in different neighbourhoods, but still, compared with the violence of the past 10 days, it's stayed relatively quiet in Khartoum and elsewhere. The mood across Sudan remains anxious. The hope is that the current ceasefire can lead to more detailed political negotiations, but the fear is that both sides will simply use it to resupply their forces. Over the weekend, with no end in sight, countries began getting their officials, diplomats and families out of Sudan. For context, Australia doesn't have an embassy in Sudan, but migrants like Mohamed Semra in Melbourne are worried about their families back home. We keep hearing stories from loved ones overseas that they can't get access to water, can't get access to food, there's electricity, keeps getting cut and there's a sense of not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. With both generals out to gain power, experts say it's unlikely either military leader will come to the table without one or both of the leaders suffering heavy losses. Pack on Triple J. Kimberly Price reporting there. Look, we need to get into this a bit more now because there's so much to get across. Dr. Charlie Hunt is an Associate Professor of Global Security at RMIT. He's actually in Tanzania right now and he joins us on Hack. Hey, Charlie, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Dave. Great to be with you. As we just heard, there is this ceasefire underway in Sudan at the moment. I'm wondering, is it likely that this is going to last, especially if there are reports of gunshots already? Is it going to achieve anything? Look, we would like to hope so, but I think the the ceasefire is holding in some areas, but there's already been reports of violations in others. So if history is any gauge, we shouldn't have high levels of confidence about that. I mean, I think as Kimberly expertly summarised in that introduction, this is a long-standing set of issues that um, have come to a head since um, the 15th of April. So we've had these 10 days of fighting. This ceasefire Um, brokered by, particularly by the United States and Saudi Arabia, has a couple of major objectives. First and foremost is to allow for aid to get in. So resume some of the cancelled humanitarian operations, address some of those medical and humanitarian needs of the civilians trapped in these urban centres. And second, to get people out. Um, It was also mentioned about the evacuations that we can discuss further but it's also Sudanese civilians who are trying to flee from these circumstances. And so they're the short-term immediate aims, but the longer-term aim is really to stop the guns, to prevent further escalation, and really to create some political space for peace diplomacy and negotiations to take place between these fighting generals to bring them back from the precipice of what looks like it could turn into a major civil war that could engulf the region with major spillover effects. As they always say in this region, what happens in a regional country like Sudan is not really likely to stay in Sudan. Neighbouring countries are likely to suffer the brunt of this quite quickly and then beyond. I mean, so, I, uh, I guess the thing is, Charlie, it sounds like neither military leader wants to negotiate anytime soon. So how long can we expect this fighting to last? 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. The UN Special Envoy for Sudan told the UN Security Council overnight that there's no indication that the two sides are willing to enter into serious negotiations yet. So um, it's hard to say how long it will last, but the big fear is that, as I said, this could descend into full-scale civil war, uh, which is really the nightmare scenario many have been fearing, the experts have, have suggested. And one of the major reasons for that is because we're unlikely to see an outright win on the battlefield, despite the military superiority or conventional superiority of the Sudanese armed forces. Um, the, the RSF are able to adapt and be more agile, perhaps retreat back into their traditional heartlands in Darfur and, uh, and mount a guerrilla campaign from there. So the main thing... Sorry. Go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, oh. we're seeing the UK government trying to get their citizens out or actively making efforts there. Do you think we're going to see um, some big announcements from the Australian government? I mean, we don't have an embassy in Sudan, right? That's right. So after, over the past few days, we've seen some dramatic evacuations of hundreds of foreigners um, under the cover of military operations by air and land. And then these continue. Um, it's extremely difficult because the airports and other major infrastructure are, are sites of major fighting. Um, as for the Australian passport holders there, I mean, it's not necessary per se for the Australian government to evacuate them. But um, once other countries choose to do so and the circumstances are what they are, then it's hard not to follow. There's very good reasons for that. Um, but the Department of Foreign Affairs, as you say, don't have an embassy in, in Sudan. Um, the uh, resources are stretched fairly thin across the continent with uh, focus really elsewhere in the Pacific and, and Southeast Asia. Um, so often the Australian government relies on its partners uh, like the UK to, to help them with the, this kind of consular issue. So DFAT have said there's around 158 Australian citizens and their families that they're trying to assist in, in getting out of Sudan. But the UK, as has been covered in the media recently, are having their own troubles and have, have been fairly lagging behind some of the other European and, and, and Western nations. So, so they're not necessarily an easy option for Australia either. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr. Charlie Hunt, who's an expert in global security at RMIT, about this current situation in Sudan. It's not looking good at all. I'm wondering, Charlie, do you think it is possible for Sudan to change, to you know, adopt a more democratically elected government? It's possible, um, but it'll be extremely difficult and, and will take a long time. So in the short term... Um, the urgency, the urgent need, the imperative is really to get the political process back on track. And there's a role here for outsiders, including the Australian government, albeit a smaller role for Australia, but putting pressure on to bring those parties to the negotiating table, using some economic levers and potentially sanctions to, to, to try and encourage that. Um, but ultimately, this would need to be a nationally-led solution. So the revolution in 2019 that Kimberly mentioned, millions of Sudanese bravely going out on the streets to, to depose this dreadful dictator, this autocrat al-Bashir, showed the appetite for this change and this democratic appetite. Um, but bringing these generals along and making sure, actually, that the process is more inclusive, involving a cross-section of Sudanese voices 
is the real challenge here. Cool. And the, the, the main part of getting from where we are now to a sustained, peaceful, democratic polity in Sudan is really demilitarizing the Sudanese state. So the military is deeply entrenched and embedded in formal politics, but also the economy in Sudan. They control the gold mining and various other lucrative trades. And it's really this fundamental issue of security sector reform or demilitarizing politics that these generals are deeply opposed to because they've got so much skin in the game. And it's a bit like asking the turkeys to vote for Christmas. Look, it's a lot to keep across. It's good to kind of get a bit of a wrap and a bit of context as well. We appreciate your time, Dr. Charlie Hunt from RMIT. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. No worries. Good to be with you, Dave. We've got some messages coming through. Somebody on the text line says, the horrible history of war in Africa is underreported in mainstream media. Is this a reflection of casual racism in Australia? Hack. Someone tells me a joke. Oh, I'm dead. Oh, you slayed me. On Triple Jack. Hey, does this make sense to you? Are you an e-boy? What about a pick-me girl? You're either nodding or shaking your head right now. If you do get it, congrats, you're across social media. (laughs) You're across internet slang. Stuff changes quickly. Well, some stuff does. Others last forever. Lamau. But how much is this slang actually changing our language? It turns out quite a bit and quicker than ever before in human history. Experts are looking at this all of the time. You notice all that stuff when we're looking at words of the year and all that jazz. So is it a bad thing? How do you feel about it? Let me know. 0439757555. In a bit, we are going to speak with an expert. But first, our reporter Nathan Nigidula has been checking it out. So if they use a snowflake, it means they're selling stuff. If they say a com now, it means they want to hook up and can host straight away. Oh, and if they say they're down to chill, it means they're selling drugs too. That's my friend Alex. We were sitting down one day when he started telling me all the different codes people use on dating apps. Anything from letting people know their place is free to selling drugs. My friend knew every word, like a second language. Any capital letter like a T... That means the same thing. Now, not all of this is within the app's community guidelines. Some of it's even illegal. So that's why people are using new slang and emojis to get around this. On apps like TikTok, heavy censorship has led to people coming up with new phrases to avoid saying words like death or murder. No spoilers, but my favorite character has become unalive. 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 So it got me thinking, is the internet changing how we speak? I started to investigate it, and it turns out it's a whole field of study called internet linguistics. So we're basically looking at what is happening with the language online through a linguistic lens. That's Cathy Zhu from the University of New South Wales. She's been looking into language trends on TikTok. It turns out when we make up slang on the internet, we're engaging in what linguists call language play. So people are basically manipulating and playing with the language to create humor. It's for fun, it's for entertainment. It's not unique to the internet. Outside of the internet, we make puns, we make words rhyme. Those are all language play. Sometimes we're not just creating these words for fun. Sometimes we have to. In China, under heavy net censorship, people use the term Internet Maintenance Day to refer to the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre as everything is blocked on their devices. People will replace the words, replacing the letters with numbers, for example, and people also replace sensitive words with emoji. 
which is also another part of creativity that the internet censorship has encouraged users to develop. Internet slang is an important part of youth subculture, and it's so prevalent among Gen Z because we're what Kathy calls social media natives. People who grew up around this type of content and can pick up on trends and in-jokes easily. Who are using the slang phrases and who are they using the slang phrases to communicate with? They are imagining talking to other social media natives. They're not imagining talking to their parents or their teachers or their employers. When they imagine talking to them, they will use a completely different language. New slang is also popping up because of the speed of online trends. Before the internet, the only way to spread slang was through word of mouth or books. But now, we have algorithms. When a new trend comes on, when a video goes viral, it goes viral in seconds or hours. And within hours, people already find out about this new trend, along with the new slang phrases and words and expressions associated with the trend. But is all this a bad thing? Kathy doesn't think so. And we have to give young people, social media natives, more credit than they are getting right now, because the older generations might misunderstand it as, oh, they don't speak the language well. But they actually know it really well because they're playing with it, right? They're playing with it for their own entertainment. They're talking to each other. Hack on Triple Jack. That story from Nathan Nigadula. A few messages coming through. Someone says, unalive is just to get around word filters. Yep. Another person. When I was in high school, people's typing was so cringe that it would give you an aneurysm trying to read it out today. <laughs> Sense a millennial there. Um, yeah, it is interesting how much stuff changes, right? So let's get into it a bit more with an expert. Tama Lever is a professor of internet studies at Curtin University and is with us now. Tama, thanks for jumping on Hack. My pleasure to be here. How much has internet talk infiltrated standard language? Oh, look, I think internet talk is standard language for many people. I don't think that the things are that different anymore. I think we do, I mean, as that piece said, we do see things change rapidly and people pick up different phrases, different expressions, whether they're shared through memes or viral videos. But it's also true that youth culture has always reclaimed and played with language. So even if it's accelerated, youth culture has always tried to find ways of saying things and words and expression and slang that are unique to them. It's part of their identity as well. It's kind of interesting the stuff that hangs on and then the stuff that doesn't, right? Like some words if you use now from, I don't know, social media a decade ago would seem super cringe, super outdated, but then others are just as they were back then. Is there a bit of a difference between Gen Z and millennials in terms of the new languages they're using? Oh, look, I think, I think millennial rags sort of always try and say that the next generation is incredibly different, and yet they're actually very similar. We might see some words and some expressions changing uh, faster than others, but we also see partly that's a response to affordances. I mean, there was a whole um, shortening of language when a text message um, not only was limited to a certain number of characters, um, but that cost money. So if it costs you 22 cents to do 140 characters, you're going to learn how to shrink everything. Um, whereas I think that sort of economy of language isn't quite so important anymore. So we're not seeing as many shortenings, for example, unless they're trying to achieve something else. Interesting. I mean, another interesting point is the discussion around coded language, right? Like how people in China get around talking about the Tiananmen Square massacre online by calling it Internet Maintenance Day. Are there other kinds of examples of how coded language is helping people get around censors? 
Oh, there are all sorts of examples, and I guess censorship depends a lot on where you're standing and how you think about it. I mean, uh, I guess a more mainstream example might be uh, people that want to share adult content on platforms that don't uh, officially support that. So if you searched on uh, TikTok, for example, for accountants, you'd find a surprisingly large number of people. They wouldn't be accountants, they'd be adult content creators, for example. So there is all sort of coded language that isn't shortenings, but it is widely understood by those communities. Okay, very interesting. I mean, are you, very quickly, we're running out of time, um, Tama Lever, but are you excited by all this change or does it freak you out? Oh, look, I, I think, as I say, every generation needs to try and own its own expression. I think it's part of being um, being young is is playing with language. And I think that's a fantastic thing. I mean, we, we like to say that it's been ex- ex- accelerating, but at the same time, we look back as far as Shakespeare, we've been playing with language for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. The internet makes that more fun and perhaps more widespread, hey. but it's definitely not going to change. Well, it's not changing anytime soon. I know you'll be keeping across it, Tama Lever from Curtin <laughs> University. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Magic, my pleasure. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.